0: the substack recently um i'm changing jobs i'm moving i may be moving to florida maybe buying a car at an undisclosed location for the moment so i'm sorry for the delays on everything we do have some cool stuff in the pipeline i'm gonna finish my post about the book of judges in the old testament um and we have some guests lined up that that will hopefully get on the pod soon so again sorry for that break in all content production but uh yeah there was a lot of stuff going on um i wanted to just add to uh my original thoughts on ukraine that i released a couple weeks ago um one of the things i i addressed in that uh podcast and which really is disturbing me about this crisis is I talked a little bit about my my work on Syria stuff and my impression that, you know, I, I know for the uh, political space I've moved into, I don't know if it's it's national conservative or what, but that, you know, there is this great skepticism of U.S. foreign policy uh, among my fellow political travelers now, and that would certainly apply to Syria. And I think I, I understand that. I think that I would take issue with sort of national conservative narratives about Syria, though, insofar as, you know, there's this color revolution meme uh, that I think describes a real phenomenon in which there is maybe not um, sufficient uh, energy among the populace to uh, overthrow the government or not, like, real organic mass desire to overthrow the government. Um, But the U.S. sort of plays a role in fomenting that or so aggressively you know, arming and supporting the forces that do uh, want to see regime change, that, you know, it, it sort of just isn't an organic political process in any sense. I think that's a real thing. Um, but, you know, I, I came to Syria from the other side. I came at it uh, from knowing people in Syria, from knowing people who were uh, involved in the revolution in its early stages. And I don't really have much insight into... Um, you know, the role the CIA and the Gulf states played in organizing and arming those groups. I know that it took place. I'm just saying, I don't know the, I don't know the details of that activity. And I don't know to what extent, you know, different people were armed than would have been in a more organic, uh, uprising or if, you know, I don't know how that played out. But basically the point I made in that podcast a a few weeks ago was my real frustration was, you know, I still retain sympathies, uh, with parts of the Syrian opposition, and based on my time living in Syria, I still have a lot of antipathy towards the Assad regime. But I think the thing I've really changed my mind about is, you know, the motives of the United States and the kind of productive role that the United States can play. I think that, you know, there's two ways to look at what happened in Syria, and I can sort of uh, hint at which one I think happened. But... One, you can think, okay, they really wanted to overthrow Assad, but they couldn't do it uh, despite putting some resources behind it. Or you could say they never really wanted to overthrow Assad and they could have with a fairly limited uh, air intervention. And in fact, what they wanted to do was sort of bog down multiple US enemies in conflict with one another, you know, whether that's Al Qaeda and the Assad regime or whatever. And I suspect that. Both these views are held by different parts of the government. And to some extent, the State Department genuinely wanted to overthrow the Assad regime. And the DOD, I think, uh, was fine with sort of Syria, Hezbollah, and, you know, whoever fighting Al-Qaeda on one side and ISIS on another. And I think that's sort of like cynicism and uh, the fact that there are cynical actors within the U.S. state who can sort of take advantage of maybe more idealistic actors within the the state apparatus and get these horrible outcomes in which you have, you know, uh, tons of endless death, lots of refugees, and no uh, diminishment of conflict. You know, it's a, uh, I would say that obviously now everything America did and tried to do in Syria was a failure. You could say that, you know, the mission to destroy ISIS was ultimately a success, but you know, the development of ISIS was something that the U.S. also had, had a role in uh, allowing to happen. So it's, you know, it's difficult to call that um, a success. So what does all this have to do with Ukraine? Well, there's a couple weird things going on with this conflict that are, that are really disturbing to me. The first is that everybody seems, or like a lot of people in the policy space, including some sort of national conservative folks, you know, they listen to Putin's speech, And they've seen the nature of this invasion, and they've said, well, you know, he's really off his rocker. Maybe there were uh, some, like, sensible motivations for worrying about, you know, uh, a NATO state or a a state that wanted to join NATO on its border, but he's really lost it. And in his speech, you know, he's talking about uh, the czarist period in Russia and the old Russian Empire, and, like, this is nuts. And I just think that, like, um,. Without defending uh, anything Putin said or has done, it's obvious that it's not unpredictable or insane because lots of people predicted it. Um, I'm going to drop a clip in here from John Mearsheimer, uh, who was talking, I think, in 2015 or 2016 about sort of the specific steps um, after the, the change of government in 2014 in Ukraine. The the way that uh, the West and America in particular was basically setting Ukraine up to get fucked because it was, as John Mearsheimer put it, leading Ukraine down the primrose path.
1: But I actually think that what's going on here is that the West is leading Ukraine down the primrose path. And the end result is that Ukraine is going to get wrecked. And I believe that the policy that I'm advocating, which is neutralizing ukraine and then building it up economically and getting it out of the competition between russia on one side and nato on the other side is the best thing that could happen to the ukrainians what we're doing is encouraging the ukrainians to play tough with the russians we're encouraging the ukrainians to think that they will ultimately become part of the west because we will ultimately defeat putin and we will ultimately get our way time is on our side and of course, the Ukrainians are playing along with this. And the Ukrainians are almost completely unwilling to compromise with the Russians and instead want to pursue a hardline policy. Well, as I said to you before, if they do that, the end result is that their country is going to be wrecked. And what we're doing is, in effect, encouraging that outcome. I think it would make much more sense for us to, neutral, to, to work to create a neutral Ukraine. It would be in our interest to bury this crisis as quickly as possible. It certainly would be in Russia's Interest to do so. And most importantly, it would be in Ukraine's interest to put an end to the crisis. Thank you.
0: This is the thing I see again and again that I have a problem with. You know, there are lots of national conservatives who are talking about, oh, Putin's not our enemy. Like he's Christian, he's European, da da da. I don't really care about any of that. I don't have affinity for the Russian government. I also don't really have that much antipathy for it. I mean, I don't. Um, think about it that much. I think that the tragedy is uh, part of why Russia has such a uh, significant like presence on the global stage is that we have been unable to get out of this sort of structurally driven conflict despite the collapse of the Soviet Union. And, you know, lots of people saw this coming. Lots of Americans, including, you know, cynical, murderous Americans like Henry Kissinger who have sort of been talking about how if you can't get out of like, uh, if all the security parameters and the growth of NATO stay in place after the collapse of the Soviet Union, you're sort of building uh, a natural, you know, platform for conflict with with what remains of Russia, and that uh, sort of guarantees that these sorts of things will happen. And I think it's it's a little bit sick and disturbing the degree to which because two things have happened, right? The first is that. Consecutive administrations, I would say Obama, Trump, and Biden have all sort of encouraged Ukraine to pursue behaviors that were likely to provoke this outcome. And I don't know if uh, people in government knew that that's what they were doing. Again, I think there were probably some cynical actors who said, yes, maybe we're going to bait Russia into an attack and that'll fuck over Russia. Ultimately, they'll pay too high a price and all will sacrifice is Ukraine. Uh, and then I bet there were other people who were idealistic about it, who said, "No, we're gonna, we're gonna get Ukraine, uh, you know, more aligned with the West. If not a NATO state, then at least, um, you know, sort of on the path to uh, alignment with NATO." And then, uh, you know, so now Ukraine is getting fucked, and this again is is what Scheimer was saying that we're we're putting Ukraine on the primrose path to get wrecked. And I think what's disturbing me. Second, is that if you start with the premise that the American state and the American government and the American bureaucrats sort of misled Ukrainians about how much backup they would have from the international community or the West specifically in the event of of an invasion by Russia, or just encourage them to pursue behaviors that was likely to provoke this outcome, uh, it's also disturbing then to see Americans... Who are so sort of like bloodthirsty and having what I see as like a really juvenile uh, response to the conflict. I mean, I get it. Like, I understand why Zelensky might be an inspiring character, and I understand why it might be cool to see like civilians arming themselves or people throwing uh, Molotov cocktails at tanks out of their sedan. But like, it really disturbs me about American psychology. Like, this is a real war, uh, people are dying. And we live in the society in some ways that encouraged Ukrainians to take risks that have gotten them here. And so now there's things going on like, you know, teenagers are being pulled out of cars and forced to fight. And uh, you know, I, I'm not even I'm not judgmental of any of this. I think a lot of people probably want to defend their country, and it is it does seem obvious uh, from the news, though. I think so much of what we're seeing is fake, and I'll get into that in a minute. But it does seem obvious that. You know, there is a real spirit uh, in Ukraine, but that's, that's them. That's them deciding as a society what they want to do. They don't need everyone in the United States to uh, talk about, like, how can we make this more deadly, more murderous? How can we, it's like, and there's something sick about, you know, people making Captain America memes with Zelensky or... Uh, sending instructions for how that You know, these complete civilians who know nothing posting on Reddit about how they think you can, you know, laser point into a helicopter pilot's eyes or something. Like, it's... People should not be this cavalier about war and about sort of uh rah violence even if they think there's a clear uh, moral sort of... Um, I don't know. Even if they think there's a clear moral distinction between the sides. Um I remember that when the Arab Spring started, and now I'm going to transition to talking about the media coverage a little bit. I think when the Arab Spring started, there were lots of inspiring stories similar to what's going on now. You know, stories of civilians standing up and fighting the government, stories of heroic courage. But I think because of the way we cover the Middle East and because of our cynicism about it, you could also find the whole time, uh, you know, you could find like the same groups that were being lauded on uh, on mainstream media, you could go on live leak or something and also see people like getting their heads chopped off. There was a real undercurrent of uh, the costs of the conflict that were visible. And for me at the time, you know, that didn't um, that didn't deter me from having some level of, of enthusiasm for some of these national uprisings. I don't know if I was right about that in, in retrospect, probably I was wrong. But all of that is to say, you could see, if you were interested in looking, you could see the real cost of war. And there was clearly, like, propaganda and, um, you know, fake stories or just sort of, like, biased stories uh, on the front page. But you could also sort of see uh, some really violent and disturbing things if you were looking. I'm sure that's true, too, now. But, like, the distinction... um, the way in which this this war has been turned into sort of like a a patriotic entertainment event for Americans is, is really disgusting. And, you know, there are these stories. All of them have been revealed as false. There's the Snake Island uh, soldiers telling the Russians to go fuck themselves before getting blown up. That was fake. The Ghost of Kiev story is fake. As far as I know, the story of the woman uh, giving seeds to a soldier and telling him, I'm putting these in your pocket so, you know, they'll grow when you die here, like that may be true but the point is this is not how you should consume media about a war like as if what's happening to the ukrainian people is that they're all a bunch of badasses who don't experience fear or suffering and every time uh the russians do something to them they just have like a quip you know it's it's like these stories sort of conspire to make you think that the the ukrainians are are happy this is happening or aren't paying a cost for the sort of immense violence um, that's overtaking their country. And that's just not, you know, there's a, there's an account on Twitter, a uh, default friend, Catherine D. Uh, sometimes I, I disagree with a lot of what she says, but one thing she said about this, and I think she was talking about war in general, is that Americans are such like broken-brained consumers at this point that the only way they can process anything is as a fandom. And so they're processing this war uh, as a fandom, like Zelensky is sort of the, the star of the movie and Putin is the big bad. And, you know, these different uh, totally fantastical anecdotes that are traveling around the media are, uh, you know, scenes in the movie. And like, on the one hand, you know, if you, if you agree that, um, I mean, I, I sort of accept the proposition that wartime propaganda is necessary But I think that that's that's a national endeavor. You know, the country defending itself will spread these heroic stories, and people can think of them what they want, but it's meant to increase morale. But I think that's different than the world, and America specifically, you know, a, a state that in some ways sponsored or made this conflict more likely. That's different than us treating it in this really juvenile way, and, you know, sort of washing our hands of of culpability because you know putin is evil and irrational so there's nothing we could have done to prevent this and uh ukrainians aren't suffering anyway because they're such badasses they love this they're all getting guns and and throwing molotovs at tanks like it's really horrible things that are happening to people um you know if you want to read about like the types of things that go on in war like look into a conflict that nobody feels romantic about read about a you know, recent cartel killings that happened in Mexico, you know, a conflict where, where sort of the the press for whatever reason acknowledges that, you know, violence is insane and there's no, um, available moral narrative and just everyone involved, uh, is sort of like dehumanized and brutalized by it. Go read about that and then ask yourself if you really think that's, you know, characteristically different than different conflicts that are, that are going on on earth. Um. So I've talked a little bit about these these propaganda anecdotes, but I I think it's it's wise to connect that to a broader theme, which is just like how virtual and unreal this event has been made. You know, there's this this famous uh, Baudelaire essay, "The Gulf War Did Not Take Place," which I've always struggled with because you know the point explicitly is not that no one suffered in the in the first Gulf War. The point is that. There was a virtual experience of the war by those, uh, you know, observing it, especially Americans, but also just those in the West. And that this virtual experience also had a bearing on the nature of the war and how the war played out. And I think there's something similar going on here, which is like, as long as what we're experiencing of this invasion is like heroic stories of Ukrainians... Uh, and you know not anecdotes about uh, teenagers being forced into service or whatever, uh, then our appetite to support it and sort of cheer on the war uh, or finance it or whatever um, is increased. Now, is that uh, that a particularly relevant factor in this case? I don't know, because it it does seem like... um, you know, there is a lot of spirit on the Ukrainian side to resist this, though even that, you know, I'm saying that as the sum total of a bunch of media I've consumed, all of which seems like nonsense. And sort of the the speed and confidence with which people lie about this conflict uh, is really sort of blowing my mind. I know, you know, I was listening to the the Commentary Magazine podcast. It's one of the last sort of openly neoconservative podcasts around, and you know, I, I find John Putthort's, uh entertaining, though uh, we disagree on most things, I guess. But he was saying, like, oh, the pace of this invasion is embarrassing. Like, this shows that the Russian army doesn't know what it's doing and bit off more than it could chew. Like, if American invasions had gone this poorly, it would be a uh, huge embarrassment so I looked, and I, you know, I just wanted to check for myself. So I, saw, I looked. How long did the did the American combat operations to sort of take control of Iraq take? And there were twenty six days of combat operations, uh, and thirty days until like the country really, you know, fell into full American hands. And that's a smaller country than Ukraine. So it's like, why are they saying this? Why are they saying that the pace of this? Um, is so slow and embarrassing. And I think this has to do with the sort of hyper-reality Baudelaire was discussing, that there's something afoot in the West where, you know, we believe if we if we say hard enough that this was a huge geopolitical error and that the Russian troop morale is super low and that the Ukrainians are resisting in a way no one could have anticipated, like, we really hope if we just say that, that in once you know, that we will both discourage the Russians and encourage the Ukrainians. And, you know... Uh, on the one hand, maybe that's not so bad. You know, maybe um, participating in some sort of, like, aspirational communications about the war in order to... I mean, maybe that's part of the role of an ally. I don't know. But as I've said, you know, feeling like my country, my government was in part responsible for this happening at all, that makes me queasy. uh, Especially to the extent that it obscures, like, the real tragic human cost of the war. Um, And so... Yeah, the, the the two main points I wanted to, to make so far, and then I'll get into a third, just to summarize here is like, I think we don't really know what's going on in terms of the success of the Russian invasion or the level of violence. I think the media is totally committed to uh, a particular narrative about, you know, this being a huge mistake by Putin uh, and, you know, maybe he'll get killed. I mean, again, like, it, this is sort of observer... Ex- you know, observer uh, affecting the experiment territory. Like, how many articles need to be in Western magazines uh, that say this is a gamble gone terribly wrong and generals might off Putin? Like, you know, uh, Russian generals get newspapers. Like, in some sense, that could affect their thinking. Is that what these newspapers have in mind? I don't know. Um, I assume Russia is, like good as you know many pariah states are at like uh you know keeping their own counsel in terms of what they believe but this is the West's advantage right that it it sets the global agenda and in some sense defines like some loose international standard of reality and you know if you're a if you're a state that wants to break out of that you have to do a lot of work to make sure that your critical people uh, are insulated from being influenced by what the West is going to say. So in some sense, how this plays out will be um, will be a measure of how effectively Russia has done that, um, both financially, but also in this sort of ideological way that I'm discussing that how have they built up resistance to uh, Western narratives that are incredibly powerful and incredibly ubiquitous. Um and, yeah, so, uh, and, to, and to summarize just about the sort of weird juvenile, like, superhero movie reaction Americans are having, I mean, I really just think this country's gone insane. I think when you, I mean, people are going to say I'm on Twitter too much, and certainly that's true, but it's like, I'm not just looking at some random anon. Like, Michael McFall, somebody who was a fucking ambassador, tweeted this morning that uh, there's no such thing as a Russian civilian, that all Russians need to choose a side. It's like, what? They didn't even, I mean, according to Michael McFaul, these people didn't even elect or choose Putin. How are they culpable? And, like, that's a thing that insane war criminals say. That's not a, something that a that a distinguished, uh, quote-unquote distinguished U.S. diplomat should say. And y- you can stay among, you know, the hyper-elite and find similarly bloodthirsty uh, and weirdly aggro statements of all kinds. And, um, yeah, I think when you when you... Take that sort of like lust for violence and combine it with the same elite class's totally hysterical response to COVID, you end up with sort of an inevitable conclusion that's like, okay, we're children in both directions. Like we we had like a not that, uh, well, I don't know what to say, but you know, we had a hysterical response to a pandemic and it took us months and months and months to... Recalibrate our expectations back downwards to how dangerous it actually was now. We have a war uh, That could spill out into nuclear conflict and the same class of people are like Let's go. What are you afraid of you pussies every Ukrainian pick up a gun? Uh, Like fuck this. Let's go kill the orcs. You know, this is not um This is not a, a sound mind or sound culture that that can produce these responses um And finally, you know, I'm sure listening to this is frustrating. I'm sure some people think this reflects sympathies with with Russia or something. So I just want to close by sort of making an argument against many of of my fellow national conservatives, though, you know, I'm I'm not that confident in this take. This is just a perspective. I mean, the first thing I'll say is that I'm not sure that what happened in 2014 and the change in the... Ukrainian government was was right. I don't know to what degree that was like an American project as opposed to, uh, you know, something Ukrainians actually wanted. And I don't think we'll ever know because, you know, the same people doing the polling and telling us what Ukrainians think are the same people who, uh, you know, work work in the State Department and pursue color revolution. So I don't know what to say about that. But there are a lot of people fighting now. And there's a lot of, or there is some evidence that Uh, Ukrainians, even Ukrainians of sort of diverse political, uh, backgrounds are mad that Russia did this. And I think obviously we can all understand that. Um, and a lot of Ukrainians appear motivated to fight to defend their country, even if, uh, it costs them their life. And, you know, I, I think that we should take that seriously as an indicator of something. And I also think that the way this, um, Conflict has been defined by sort of, um, you know, like BAP world people, like Bronze Age pervert. Like, he put out a note on Telegram that said, look, whatever you think of Oriental despotism, uh, you know, Putin didn't replace his own population with immigrants. He doesn't, uh, you know, cut the breasts off of uh, teenage girls. He does, He listed this whole, you know, list of um, sort of atrocities that he associates with the West and says, you know, Putin has not done this for whatever political and social repression there is. And so you... You have to pick a side and you should be on Putin's side. And Alexander Dugan said something similar. You know, Alexander Dugan is this, this Russian philosopher who's, who I think is kind of interesting and, and I don't consider insane or anything. But he said, basically, like, this is the war of civilizations. This is a war to reject the American global world order. And if you don't like getting kicked off of banking systems, or you don't like being told, you know, what religion you are, or you don't like America setting the moral agenda, then you must support this invasion of of Ukraine by Putin. And basically, I just think that's bullshit. Like, you don't, the premise that a lot of people are throwing up here is that, The idea that Ukraine Ukraine would ever be an independent nation that would exercise its own will or agency is just impossible, and the only two possibilities are that it's a vassal of Russia or the United States. And, you know, maybe because of its geographic location uh, right next to Russia, maybe that's true. I, I hope it's not true, but maybe that's true. But even so, I do not think that Ukrainians conceive of the defense of their nation in that way, that they are fighting either to be a vassal state to Russia or a vassal state to the United States. I suspect that they think they are fighting for independence. And, you know, even, you know, fierce warrior Zelensky has said that, you know, one of the things on the table is that Ukraine would become a non-aligned neutral country with neither a direct military patronage relationship with Russia or the US or NATO. And I think that would be a good outcome. I don't know if it's possible. I don't know what Russia would accept. But what I'm trying to say is, as, as we get into a more, uh, a world of more, you know, regional influence and not a one global hegemon, I don't think it's right for national conservatives to see every, you know, sort of regional actor that would oppose U.S. hegemony as good, especially if there's a state in the mix where it seems like, you know, the population is not um, entirely enthusiastic about being brought into this regional block. I'm perfectly sympathetic to the idea that, that you know, American influence in the world should wane and that in certain regions um, it's more natural for a regional power to exert influence uh, than the United States. Okay, but not this way. Not if the Ukrainians don't want it. I mean, and I also don't think, as I just said with uh, with this non-aligned status, like, if the Ukrainians were to win, and I don't think they will, unfortunately, or, or I don't know, but I, I think the Russians will ultimately prevail, but I don't know what the Russians want. But I, I think, like, The idea that, you know, bringing Ukraine under regional influence and not NATO influence would require this kind of direct invasion doesn't really make sense to me. And I I think that, you know, there are populations, I don't know, in Taiwan, in Ukraine, in all sorts of places where I think it is fine for national conservatives to say U.S. troops shouldn't go over there. And it's fine to say that our commitments should be limited. But I don't think it is right or honorable to say, and anyone in the local population who resists sort of being subsumed by Russian Empire or Chinese Empire is just like a, you know, LGBT NGO activist, uh, you know, person. Like, that's not what they're fighting for. I assume they're fighting for, and again, I'm, I'm basing this off of, like, how I think about people, not any particular knowledge of the conflict, but it's like, random citizens don't, pick up guns and fight to be like an NGO vassal state with endless LGBT activism like they're fighting because they think they're a different country than Russia maybe that's a historical proposition that stands on shaky ground I don't know and I don't really care I mean it's it's what they're fighting for but I don't think again just to just to summarize this point I don't think if if we consider ourselves domestic opponents of US empire I do not think we should take the further step of rooting for all regional powers who are in some sense at odds with U.S. empire uh, in subsuming states that previously had some American influence. I think we can root for neutrality and sovereignty for these states uh, taking on a bigger role in their own, um, you know, in their own affairs, in their own destiny. And perhaps I will be proven... Uh, naive and just like a stupid lib that, you know, I would ever think that such a thing could occur. You know, how are countries with, with economies and militaries the size of Ukraine supposed to stand up to to Russia and America and insert their own uh, sort of national vision? I don't know. But obviously, there are differing degrees to which countries are uh, influenced by politics in other countries, even countries that are in as vulnerable a position as Ukraine. So uh, this is a very sad time. It's a very scary time. I'm upset, as you can tell, that I think people are being so... Caval- you know, people who would never put their own lives on the line are being so... And probably would not even fight to defend America if Russia invaded, for Christ's sake. But, you know, it, that's not our place to sort of be gleeful about violence. But, the, you know, as I've also said, that I don't think... Um, That doesn't make me root for russia i mean if if ukrainians do not want to be uh taken over by russia and they're willing to fight for it then you know that's uh that's a brave thing and i don't know what's going to happen but the outcome i would hope for is sort of a a neutral and independent ukraine that was uh you know convincingly neutral enough in its in its outward politics that Uh, both these empires would to some extent greater or lesser leave it alone. Maybe that's impossible in, in 2022, but that's what I have my fingers crossed for.